0: I'm Khalil Ekolona, and this is Nashville. 184 years ago, the United States government, led by President Andrew Jackson, forced roughly 16,000 Cherokee people from their homes in Tennessee and neighboring states. The Cherokee, along with people of the Muscogee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, and Seminole nations, were forced to walk the Trail of Tears to Oklahoma. Sections of the trail pass right through present-day Nashville. This is a part of our history, but it's mostly out of view. What does it mean for our city, and how can we reconcile this piece of our story? Later this hour, we'll talk with Native activists and historians about the legacy and future of the Trail of Tears. But first, for Republicans in Tennessee, transgender care has catapulted into a top issue this campaign season, complete with a rally at the state capitol at the end of this week. The most recent flare-up was sparked by a misleading segment from an anti-trans activist who lives here in Nashville. He claimed Vanderbilt's pediatric transgender clinic was, quote, mutilating children. Conservative politicians seized on that slogan and demanded Vanderbilt stand down. WPLN's senior healthcare reporter, Blake Farmer, has been following it all, and he joins me now. Hey, Blake. Welcome hey. back. Hey, Khalil. So let me get this right. There's a political rally this week at the Tennessee Capitol Regarding gender affirming care for
1: teens, right? Uh, Correct. It's Friday afternoon. Uh, Though they are not using such sensitive language like gender affirming care, they call this a rally to end child mutilation. Who's behind this rally? Well, it, it's the same guy who started this firestorm for Vanderbilt's pediatric clinic. His name is Matt Walsh. He works for The Daily Wire, um, has also produced a, a documentary that that uh, uh, came out this year uh, called What is a Woman? Um, but he is very well connected politically. Um, Marsha Blackburn, our our U.S. senator, says she will be in attendance. Um you know it'll be interesting though to see whether this is really an issue that is resonating with rank and file you might call them voters in tennessee um but certainly this is an issue that has entered you know the political spin cycle at this point um you know i was i was listening to a titans uh, game on the radio last sunday like you do I mean, we're radio people yeah um on 1045 the zone heard this ad um a, a radio ad a minute long ad that was going after pediatric trans care. Is this the same crowd behind those ads? You know, actually, no. Uh, At the end, you hear the little disclaimer, it says, uh, paid for by America First Legal. Mm. So uh, I looked them up, and um, this is uh, a a group started by Stephen Miller, if that name sounds familiar. That is uh, President Trump's former speechwriter. who, who is responsible for many things in the Trump administration, including many of its policies uh, uh, on immigration and others. Um, I- anyway, we, we have not heard back from them on exactly why uh, they were running this ad and, and, you know, kind of where they... Uh, make some of their claims, what they're based on, um, you know, curiously, this ad doesn't even mention Vanderbilt, but it, it uh, clearly is uh, going after the left and President Biden over uh, them promoting, um, you know, use of hormone therapies, although they say things like, you know, trying to get girls to grow facial hair. Mm. So
0: earlier this month, Vanderbilt said that they were going to pause gender affirming surgeries as
1: Republican state lawmakers asked. What does that mean for them? practically. You know, it, uh, in saying that they were pausing surgeries, Vanderbilt also pointed out that they do very few of them. Um, in fact, they say uh, on average, and haven't been around, but since 2018, but on average, it's been five a year and never genital surgeries. So uh, they don't say this exactly, but we would presume those would be um, uh, what are known as tops surgeries, usually breast removal. Um But much more of what they do is related to hormone therapy, which, uh, under the standards of care, often happens in those early teen years. And curiously, uh, state lawmakers who were making these demands for Vanderbilt to to stop surgeries did not mention having a problem with hormone therapy in this letter, um, which I found peculiar. Hmm. State
0: lawmakers have proposed restricting hormone therapy mm-hmm. for trans teens in the past few years. Sh- so, should we expect more proposals like that when they reconvene in January? You know, I really don't
1: know. Um, there are a few lawmakers who are still very bothered by hormone therapy, even just the idea of it um, as as folks uh, transition in their puberty years, um, and, and they really want them to be much harder to use. But the debate last year over a, a couple of bills, I think, was instructive. So in the end, what you had was um, some of the more moderate Republicans sort of heading off some of the more extreme restrictions on use of hormones for for trans teens. And they did this essentially by passing a bill that sounds like it restricts hormone therapy in Tennessee and and restriction of puberty blockers, Mm. but it was limited to prepubescent kids. And even at Mm. the time, the head of Vanderbilt's uh, Pediatric Transgender Health Clinic told lawmakers that this really doesn't mean much because they would never start hormones before puberty.
0: So was this just sort of symbolic? It it sounds like they passed a law that doesn't really do anything except give them a way to say they did something to rein in transgender care for kids.
1: You, you know, you could argue that it does keep hormone therapy from from creeping earlier and earlier, which which I think is an a fear that that some have expressed. But yes, it feels like it was mostly symbolic. So As this political flare-up kind of plays out, I'm interested to see what state lawmakers really will do when they reconvene in January. You know, they have had hearings in the last couple of years where Vanderbilt representatives from this very clinic appeared and have been questioned, and it was not uh, so controversial, you know, at least not so controversial as it's become in the last few weeks. Um, And even lawmakers who signed onto this letter demanding Vanderbilt to stop surgeries on minors... Um, were some of the same folks who in those hearings mentioned that they understand that regulating hormone therapy, you know, is kind of fraught. For instance, these same endocrinologists who, who would work with kids who start, um, uh, you know, who, who are transitioning, they also work with kids who might be starting puberty early and need these puberty blockers or hormones to kind of uh, influence how puberty is going in, in their own gender.
0: So, does any of this seem to address the concerns of parents or trans kids themselves?
1: well, uh, the the concerns of of kids and their parents, um, you know, certainly parents have their own concerns as they're walking uh, their children through uh, these transitions. I mean, there is so much going on um, in a family where a, a, a child who was was assigned female at birth um, is now transitioning they are very concerned but their their biggest concern really is how state lawmakers might intervene between them and what they uh, are, are being told they should do by their uh, health professionals their doctor
0: mm. so at this point is anyone accusing vanderbilt of breaking any laws at this pediatric clinic that offers transgender care.
1: You know, uh, really no. And I think this sort of shows the the misleading nature of the supposed expose that started this whole thing. It suggested people who had moral objections to participating in care were being uh, being forced to participate. Well, Vanderbilt says it has a policy that allows anyone to opt out and they don't discriminate against people who opt out. Okay, there was also a suggestion that Vanderbilt was doing these surgeries uh, because they were big money makers and yes, there is a video of a doctor saying gender affirmation surgeries can uh, be revenue generators. But then you learn that there have been about five a year and never on genitals, which are the ones that even in this video uh, supposedly make the most mm. revenue. And, of course, they're, they're referencing uh, the surgeries for adults. So, um, it, you know, it, it does not appear that, that anyone at this point is accusing Vanderbilt of breaking a law. So is Vanderbilt pushing back against
0: any effort?
1: Well— they're being noticeably quiet. I mean, we talk to Vanderbilt all the time. I mean, they're one of the biggest employers in town. The medical center is one of the biggest employers in town. This is an issue they will not grant an interview on right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And it seems like they won't be doing that for for quite some time. If you're listening, we're open, we're all ears. Um, But that doesn't mean they're not talking to us off the record and uh, and, uh, certainly issuing statements. But their statements, uh, you know, even when they said that they were stopping surgeries, they stated that they would likely restart after a while. They said that they um, were, were sort of going to review the clinical guidelines, kind of make sure that they were on firm footing and start again. But in the end, they also said, this is a letter to state lawmakers, they said that they will follow whatever laws are passed in the future. Now, Will they be working behind the scenes to influence what laws might be created? You know, this is why Vanderbilt has full-time lobbyists on staff. But, um, you know, I do not think you are going to see them making a big public display or campaign to defend their work on this front. The issue is just too volatile, too hot right now in Tennessee politics.
0: Okay, get out of here and keep on reporting on this story. we Will do. Blake Farmer is the senior healthcare reporter here at WPLN News. Blake, thanks again for this, and You're thanks welcome. for your reporting. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we will look at the legacy of the Trail of Tears, which has routes that cross through our city. Do you have an ancestor that was forced to walk the Trail of Tears? Tweet us at this is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil E. Colonna and this is Nashville. Today we are talking about the Trail of Tears. Parts of the trail run through Tennessee and right through Nashville. A few times a month we're going to take you out into the city with us to show you an ordinary street corner, a parking lot, a patch of forest floor. Now I know what you're thinking. That doesn't sound very exciting. Our goal here is to peel back the layers on the overlooked parts of our city and region, past and present. Today, we're dropping a pin on Gay Street in downtown Nashville, a spot on the riverbank beside the Victory Memorial Bridge. Nearly 200 years ago, about 1,000 Cherokee people came here, almost all of them on foot, and crossed over the Cumberland River. They were on their way to Indian Territory in present-day Oklahoma, It was a difficult journey that they were forced to take. And for about a quarter of the people who walked what became known as the Trail of Tears, it was fatal. The bridge the Cherokee crossed over is gone, but today one part of the original structure still stands. Our senior producer, Steve Harouche took a visit to the site over the weekend.
2: To reach the bridge, the Cherokee walked up 2nd Avenue, right through what is now the heart of Nashville's tourist district. It's early in the afternoon, but there are people everywhere. And every few minutes, a transportation vehicle rumbles slowly by. At the corner of 2nd and Commerce, I meet up with Toy Heap. He's vice president of the Native History Association, and he's been researching the Trail of Tears for a long time. He tells me that there's a newspaper account that indicates on this day, October 15th, the first group of Cherokee came through Nashville on the Trail of Tears. As our
3: paper was going to press, it was printed on the 16th, uh, uh, a detachment of Cherokee passed passed through our town.
2: He unrolls a map that shows how the streets were configured
3: back in 1838. So they came in um, on uh, Murfreesboro Road and runs into Lafayette Street. And from that point, they could have gone up First Avenue Well, at that time, that was called Water Street. But that was where the wharf was, where they unloaded the steamboats, and it was incredibly busy.
2: Back then, Second Avenue was called Market Street, and it would have made a lot more sense to go this way and avoid the traffic jam at the wharf. This way was also less steep.
3: The detachments were, they averaged like a 1,000 people. Um, There were 11 that uh, Came the overland route or the northern route and actually passed through Nashville. So, what the citizens of Nashville would have seen at the time was a line of people, like a thousand mile, a thousand people long, probably in single file or two abreast to avoid blocking the road. And even though they had supply wagons. Almost all of them walked. So they were they were on foot almost the the whole way. So standing here one hundred and eighty four years ago, that's what you would have seen.
2: Toy says they would have been dressed, well, a lot like the people in Nashville. So maybe despite their numbers, they just kind of blended in.
3: It's kind of odd because the newspapers, before from early eighteen thirty eight, when they were doing the roundup and everything, they have a lot of news about the. They have a lot of news about the roundup, but then when they actually start coming through, there's only a few articles that actually say the Cherokee were passing through here at the time. And basically, that's all they say. One of the newspapers had apparently voiced some concern in one of their articles about the condition of the Cherokee. Some of them had problems getting supplies.
2: It's a little jarring walking this path today with the backdrop of music blasting from party buses and bars. We continue walking north up 2nd Avenue, surrounded by construction barricades, until we reach the public square.
3: Yeah, the square was basically in the same place, but it was laid out different. So when the Cherokee came through here, they would have seen the 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 courthouse over here to our right, and the market house uh, would be to the left. There were
2: also a couple of hotels back then. Today, there's a man playing catch with his dog on a patch of grass as we walk over the same land that the Cherokee crossed over on their way to the Nashville Toll Bridge. At the time, it was the only way to cross the Cumberland without taking a ferry, which for a group of this size just wouldn't have been practical. The bridge is probably one of the main reasons the Cherokee came through Nashville. It was a covered bridge with two lanes of traffic and a pedestrian walkway on each side. We head east across the square and down a set of stairs to Gay Street. And down here, there are two interpretive plaques which Toy worked on getting installed. One is dedicated to the history
3: of the bridge itself. The guy that designed it, his name was Lewis Wernwag. He was a big deal in um, 19th century engineering. He had, he's a very significant figure. So when we were communicating to the National Park Service, telling them, so this is a Lewis Wormwag bridge, they were like, wow, that really really turned them on. They were really excited about that because he's a big deal. The other plaque
2: is dedicated to the removal of the Cherokee and the Trail of Tears. Looking up from the plaque, all we can really see is a chain link fence and a lot of brush and weeds. We actually have to walk about 20 feet to the left before we can look back behind where the plaques are. And then, we see it.
3: So we're looking at a the corner of a bridge abutment. It's uh, built out of cut uh, stone that's uh, stacked. Um, the abutment it's a it's like a rectangular structure, and we're looking at the northern uh, corner of it. Um, from where we're standing, um, we can't even see the base of it because it's, it's, it's so big when you when you're uh, down on the riverbank looking up at it that's when it really makes its impact on how how massive it was standing here
2: I try to imagine what it would have been like to leave your home behind walking hundreds of miles on foot toward an uncertain future in a place you would never seen and I have to admit it's kind of overwhelming I asked Toy how he's
3: feeling. Well, it's you know, I I try to stay focused on the historical aspect of it. Um, it is it's a disturbing episode in in our history. Uh, it's something that uh, that never should have happened, uh, and you know. It's really easy to get lost in that and you just start thinking, you know, I just can't, I just can't, you know, think about this
2: anymore. He also says we should remember that while this is a story of loss, it's also a story of a people overcoming tremendous hardship. The Cherokee culture is still alive today, despite everything it's endured. Toy hopes that more signage and plaques will make the Trail of Tears more visible here in Nashville.
3: You see all those people on Second Avenue, and you know there would be a certain percentage of them. I think that would be interested in knowing that this is down here. So if we had stuff out there that you know direct them here, then that would be a good thing.
0: That was Toy Heap. Vice President of the Nash- Native History Association, and he joins me now. Also with me is Melba Chicote Eats, a member of the Muscogee Creek Nation of Oklahoma. Toy Melba, thank you both for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Now, before we start, Melba, I understand that you'd like to share something with us.
4: Yes, thank you so much. It's an honor to be here and to be able to share this. This comes directly from my Principal Chief, David Hill in Okmulgee, Oklahoma, which is our capital, the capital of the great Muskogee Creek Nation, and it's a land acknowledgement. It's very important that we acknowledge the land and the people who once lived here. So this is from our chief, David Hill. He says, We acknowledge that we are on the traditional land of indigenous peoples, including the Mississippian people and their descendants, the Yuchi, the Muskogee, the Quasadi, the Shawnee, the Chickasaw, and the Cherokee Nation. Nashville is located between the ancient city of Moundville, Browns Creek, Castillo Springs Mound, Sellers Farm, and other sacred places. We would like to honor and acknowledge the the, and recognize the indigenous tribes and the tribal nations who were forcibly removed as the original inhabitants and the keepers of the land and water that now make up this present-day Nashville and other areas of Tennessee. Tribes that were forcibly removed to the lands west of the Mississippi River to Oklahoma Indian Territory are the Cherokee Nation, the Chickasaw Nation, the Choctaw Nation, Muscogee Nation, and the the Seminole Nations.
0: Thank you very much for sharing that with us, Melba. And you know, part of the trail, it it crosses right through downtown Nashville, but these plaques that we just heard about are a little off the beaten path, Toit. Do you feel like most people here are aware of this history we share? Toy, are you with us? Let me ask you that, Melba.
4: Well, I don't think that they are. This is a busy, thriving, fast-growing city of Nashville. And as we look back 180, maybe five years ago, these people of Indigenous people of the five, and they were called civilized tribes at that time, they walked here and they came through 39 counties in the state of Tennessee in different, as Toy has already said, different detachments of maybe about a thousand or so peoples. And we are talking today in particular the Northern Trail. Mostly the Northern Trail is what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. And what people don't know, he's lifted up the Cherokee, and the Muscogee people also were walking with the Cherokee on the Northern Trail. And so that's quite interesting in, in my thoughts. So when we talk about the removal, a lot of people would be aware maybe about the Cherokee But they would not be aware of the Muscogee Creek people or the Chickasaw, Choctaw or Seminole peoples that have were removed at the same time. Mm -hmm. A tragedy and ethnic cleansing of the southeast of the United States.
0: You know, part of understanding more about our shared connection to this and to better our knowledge on what the trail was and where it was is you know, coming to the truth, it could be, this wasn't just one trail, right? I mean, Toy, what were the routes that came through Tennessee?
3: Well, well, we already talked about the eleven that uh, came through Nashville. Uh, another route um, that uh, crossed uh, through southern Tennessee was the Bell route. It uh, went through Pulaski. And uh, Lawrenceburg crossed the, uh, uh, the, where the David Crockett State Park is now. There's an original segment of the trail that still exists there in the park. And they went on across to Memphis and on out to Indian Territory that way. Another detachment um, left uh, Fort Payne, uh, Alabama, and went through Pulaski, too. In fact, the, those routes crossed. Uh, there in Pulaski, and went on out um, through uh, uh, Northwest Tennessee. No. And there were also three, the The original uh, detachments were, they traveled on the water. The original plan with the military was to do the whole removal by boat but there was a severe drought that summer. It was a very hot summer. And those three detachments that traveled by steamboat, they, the, they ran aground at low water and they experienced very high death tolls. So the, uh, that's when the Cherokee petitioned uh, uh, Winfield Scott, the general that was uh, leading the removal to actually let them conduct the, the removal uh, themselves. Mm. So uh, those are the um, the
0: detachments that uh, travel through Tennessee. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ecolona. We're talking this hour about the Trail of Tears with Native historian Toy Heap and Native activist Melba Chicote Eads. Now, Melba, I understand you have a direct connection to the Trail of Tears. Can you tell me about that?
4: Well, um, my great-great-grandfather was removed from Fort Mitchell, Alabama, and you have to remember that um, being Muskogee, being a Muskogee woman, and living here in the state of Tennessee, before removal, we had what was called the Creek War, and ultimately the Creeks fought two wars to try to prevent being removed, mm. and—but— uh, this descendant was my great-great-grandfather, and he was Hijidi. And so he had been born in in the land of Georgia, which was our land, and Hijidi's our South Georgia. And as time went by, they were, their lands in Georgia were succeeded. And so his family crossed over the Chattahoochee River, into Alabama and were around Fort Mitchell, Alabama, which um, is just across the river. And uh, so he left from that area, and the Creeks had a horrible time. They were early on to leave. They had forced removal. They had the killing of William McIntosh when he succeeded land um, in the Treaty of Indian Springs, and so when we think about that hard time and the brutalness of both our National Council to prevent the people from signing and being removed, and then the holdout till the final last and the Second Creek War to be actually in change and and removed. At that time, but he was a child about ten years old, ten, and uh, that's when he left on the trail of tears.
0: So tell me, like what, what does learning about your ancestors in this way and these stories that your family has told you, how has that really inspired you to to dedicate yourself to educate others about this history that we all share?
4: Well, you know, it's a hard history to talk about. And it's a hard thing to think that children and elders were the first to perish on these trails. I think I read in a book somewhere that uh, children under the age of five probably would not survive. And elders under the age of um, 60 or 59, something like that, would not survive this removal And in our family, we were always told we did not want to go. We were not going. We fought a war. We are not going. Mm. And we still ended up leaving. But uh, the women said, we have the seeds of, of the unborn within us. And if we do not go, they won't have a chance to live. And so they marched on. And they suffered terrible losses and they still walked on. The paper in Little Rock records, because remember, these are Southern Indians and they had calico cotton clothing, and they recorded that the Muskogee people that had been camped there, blood, they wrote in the newspaper there at Little Rock, bloody footprints in the snow mm. as wow. the creeks left.
0: Wow. Toy, you took our producer Steve Harush. You took him down to the remains of the bridge downtown. Tell me, what are some sections of the trail that people can still visit today?
3: Um, you can really visit almost the whole length of the trail. Of course, the roadbeds, the original roadbeds, aren't there. Um, there are a few places though where they they, they are. Um, there's a, a, a place in Rutherford County, so on a Corps of Engineers uh, property, uh, it's the site of a town called uh, Jefferson that was actually um, evacuated when uh, the Corps built uh, the Stones River Dam. They thought it would flood the entire town. There's a, a segment of the trail that runs through there. This was part of four detachments Left the main route and traveled north of Murfreesboro. We think to avoid uh, high tolls uh, that they were being charged because they traveled. Most of these roads were were toll roads, and uh, uh, these four detachments went uh, through Old Jefferson. Uh, that trail is is marked. Uh, there um uh, is a like I mentioned earlier the uh, David Crockett State Park. Lawrenceburg uh, that has uh, a well preserved uh, section of the original roadbed. You could also make the case that the Fort Nashboro Interpretive Center could be considered a site that's related to the Trail of Tears Mm. because. Uh, that's just like a block away from Second Avenue where the Cherokee walked. And, of course, it's the site of the first fort that was built by the Euro-American uh, people that were coming in and occupying the land. And um, that was uh, really one of the, the the big factors early on that led to the eventual um uh, removal of the Cherokee, uh, so I would consider that uh, to be a, a site uh, on the trail as well. Um, mm-hmm. You could also um, visit the Hermitage; uh, that's actually a certified site on the trail. Um, uh, it may sound strange to hear me recommending visiting the home of the man who was probably most responsible for initiating Indian removal but you're talking about you former can, President Andrew Jackson Andrew Jackson yeah that's right he um, uh, introduced the uh, or he proposed the Indian, Indian Removal Act uh, not long after he was elected president yeah and they don't have a real big uh, exhibit there about his role in the Trail of Tears but you know I, I think you could make a, a visit to the hermitage, just knowing that you know this was uh, one of the main people responsible for the, uh, for the trail, and I think uh, that's something that people should probably
0: uh, be, be aware of. Let's take a really quick break. When we come back, we'll look deeper into the Trail of Tears and how we can remember this time in our history, and what it means to our region. What do you wish you had learned about the Trail of Tears? Tweet us at This is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. We've been talking this hour about the Trail of Tears and its connection to our city and region. While there are a few signs and posts on display, it's not always easy to know exactly where the trail was. And as we heard earlier, even when there are plaques and the landmarks they describe aren't always clearly visible. But some people have been working to change that, to make this history more present, and to honor the memories of the people who were forced to walk on the trail. Melba Chacote eads is still with me, and she has been doing this work. Now, Melba, you started doing tra- trail walks in 2002. Tell me, why did you decide to do that?
4: Well, we uh, we were affiliated with a, the powwow, the Yahola powwow at that time, and I think it's Wilco powwow. They just had it two, about two weeks ago. And the uh, Don Yehola started at Powell, and he's a Muscogee citizen. And so we, we were—Creeks we're, were real close to—we uh, stick together. We're a small group here in Tennessee, uh, living at large uh, in the state of Tennessee. But we were approached by an uh, uh, individual at Cook's United Methodist Church. He said he sees a sign every time he drives by, and he wonders if we could do something about the trail of tear. So he asked— me and Cindy, what do we thought? And we thought, well, we'll just commemorate with a walk. And so we started our walk, and I started um, Jeanette Washington, my cousin Don Washington. They came uh, from Okmulgee, and we decided we had been doing some uh, work here bringing Native American awareness and we call it our, our ministry. Mm-hmm. And we had done some several things prior to that opportunity. And we decided, yes, we should do a walk to commemorate and remember, but not only the Muscogee people, but the five tribes that were removed, because a lot of times people don't know that. So we started that. And one particular time when we were walking, a pour down rain. I mean, not just a little pour down. I mean,
0: a heavy storm, huh? The
4: heaviest storm, and we were in our creek dresses. We looked, of course, beautiful, and we're driving through the rain, and I to get to the church because we were going to walk a mile. We used to walk a mile, and uh, we got we couldn't even see the road. The rain was so powerful. And when we finally got to the church, they said, they've already started walking, Hmm. the pastors and some of the men. And we were like, well, we had already discussed that. Well, we probably wouldn't walk kind of bad for us. We said, you know, our relatives already walked and we'll get wet. We're Hmm. in their dresses, you know,
5: Hmm.
4: and they were going to do this program. We'll be sopping wet. Mm -hmm. So uh, then we, we drove to catch up with them and there was a long line of cars. Behind the pastors, there was five men walking with their umbrellas just blowing in the wind. And and we just, our hearts were just so touched because they had done and they had practiced what we were hoping to reveal. Mm. They had took up that mantle for us this day and they walked a portion of the commemorative trail, that one mile, for us in the rain. Now, last year we had the commemorative trail of tears walk on the northern trail mm-hmm. in Cannon County through the town of Woodbury, where I now live, and I we 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 had our own education. You know, we were just walking commemorating. But from that year, two thousand and two, we learned that um, we we started deeply Dipping into history. And so I so appreciate toy. We Toy and I and his family, we go back years from the first time I moved to Tennessee. But
0: now, my next guest is somebody you know as well. Yes, she has also been working to keep this history alive. Helen Tarleton has been helping to organize an annual Trail of Tears walk in her community in Whites Creek since two thousand and nineteen. Helen, thank you so much for joining the show today. Really appreciate it.
5: Thank you, Khalil. I'm so happy to be here.
0: You know, tell me, how did I'm honored. you? It's an honor to have you, really. Tell me, how did you come to learn that your house was by part of the route for the Trail of Tears?
5: Well, there's a sign in Madison going across a bridge that is on Old Hickory Boulevard. And because I knew of the um, Hermitage Association, I just assumed that it went all the way around old Hickory Boulevard. And that's, that's where my house is, um, in Whites Creek. So, uh, so that's, that's how I learned about it.
0: So once you learned, how did that knowledge sit with you?
5: Um, well, I would sit on my front porch and I, my house is right across the street from a beautiful field. And, um, oftentimes, especially in the fall, I would just, sit there and think about the fact that um, people had suffered so much going right in front of my house. Um, So it didn't sit uh, well. And um, I talked it over with a friend and in the neighborhood and she and I started kind of daydreaming about doing some kind of commemorative walk. And we took it to our, um, our two local organizations, the White's Creek Historical Society and the friends of Whites Creek, and uh, they were very supportive and um, helped me get in touch with Melba. So we piloted the first one in 2019.
0: What were those initial conversations you had with Melba? What were they like?
5: Um, Melba was just so receptive and enthusiastic about supporting us, and um, and I was really we our group was really interested in wanting to um, learn about how they had approached it in Woodbury and what the focus was. Um, We were just, you know, very, um, we wanted to do whatever we did. We wanted it to be focused on um, commemoration and reconciliation. And Melba was um, so helpful with finding the right language to use for that. And then she offered to come, which was, even more terrific. And um, she and I became friends.
0: Yeah, beautiful. Melba, what was that like for you to go on that walk?
4: Awesome. Awesome. Because um, we'd been walking uh, several years on, at that time. And, um, you know, we had, uh, we had made a commitment towards the reconciliation of our land. Mm-hmm. We cannot change what history has done. I mean, heavens, we don't like to think about it. We were taught, our people were taught never to look back, always looking up ahead, never look back. Don't come back either. We were really taught that. Mm. And so it's always surprising to, to think about living in these areas that our mikos, our kings, our chieftains, headmen told us, don't go back.
0: How does that How does that affect or change your relationship with the land?
4: I am happy to be on our homeland. I feel blessed to have an opportunity to walk where we were, to walk in those footsteps, to try to remember in prayer and and reconciliation. Because we cannot change what happened, we have to look for a better day. Mm -hmm. And that comes with a. I know Jeanette Washington, my cousin's wife, she and I, were we were the go-getters. She's, she passed on early, and so I have missed her so many years. But we decided that we can't be bitter. We had spent a lot of our life feeling kind of bitter about that, mm-hmm. kind of angry and even hateful. And we decided we cannot, we cannot do that mm. because we walk in a new day. We have survived, we're still here, and we we have an opportunity to tell about our history and to help others who live on our land today to know how much it meant to us to be here and for them to continue in a good way.
0: Now, Helen, I understand that you also have an ancestor who was indirectly involved with the Trail of Tears. Tell, tell me, tell us a little bit about him. What role did he play?
5: So I have an ancestor whose name was Andrew Pickens and he was actually a revolutionary um, era general and he was appointed as one of the Indian treaty commissioners. Um, and in his in the first part of his life, he was a soldier who was responsible for the destruction and devastation of the Cherokee villages Um, But then pivoted pretty quickly after uh, those early wars and became um, a really, um, anyway, devoted the rest of his life to um, working uh, to develop treaty negotiations and uh, worked closely with um, one of the Creek leaders, Alexander McGillivray, took him years and years to uh, develop trust with Alexander McGillvary, but he did, and um, just was devoted to trying to um, create uh, rights for to defend landholdings for for all of the tribes, all of the bands. Um, you know, and we know the story of the treaties, so we know what happened in the end. It didn't really hold, but he worked pretty hard in his lifetime um, to try to. Um, defend the land of the people in this part of the country for the native people.
0: Tell me, how have you been able to reconcile with this part of your family's history?
5: Mm -hmm. Well, um, it's been a long time and it's a work in progress. Um, Mm -hmm. I think um, the relationships and my commitment commitment to the relationships that I have with um, people like Melba is um, a huge part of it. Uh, working through the White's Creek Historical Society and the Friends of White's Creek. Um, There's a beautiful quote by Parker Palmer, and it's not long, so I'm just going to share it because I think this has been a driving thing for me. Please. Um, Nothing that is worth doing can be achieved in our lifetime. Therefore, we must be saved by hope. Nothing which is true or beautiful or good makes complete sense in any immediate context of history. Therefore, we must be saved by faith. Nothing we do, however virtuous, can be accomplished alone. Therefore, we're saved by love.
0: That's beautiful. That, Thank you.
5: That's, you're welcome. You
0: know,
5: and, and I also think that um, just another quick piece I'll add is just that I think that I actually believe guilt is a healthy emotion. I think it's something that is designed for us to get our attention and gives us an opening for learning. And so, um, you know, when we've done the walks with Melba, we've taken the um, extra step to make time to sit together and to learn more and to build um, our relationships from the heart. And I think that is to me um, the essential part of what needs to happen um, in order for all of us to kind of create the world we want moving forward.
0: Toy Heap from the Native American History, the Native History Association is still with us now. Toy, tell me, are there any more plans to make the trail more visible? Uh,
3: Yes, uh, we've been working for um, a long time to get uh, the trail marked. The National Park Service uh, puts up markers that, show where the the trail is. They have a logo uh, for the the National Historic Trail. And there have been a lot of delays. Um, We were working on it um, back uh, in early 2020. The National Park Service uh, drew up a a draft sign plan. Uh, We were just about to start communicating to the public officials to try to get the, the signs put up. And then the pandemic happened, so that kind of put that on the back burner. But um, uh, the Native History Association has plans to return to that and try to get the the sign plan implemented uh, for uh, Nashville and Davidson Davidson
0: County. Mm-hmm. Now we have about just under a minute left, but Melba, I want to ask you. You know. You know, what does it mean to be living here? We're on this land with this history. How can all of us kind of best come to understand this and to take a good step so we can come to terms with this? Just under a minute.
4: Um, I was going to say, uh, last year we had our commemorative Trail of Tears walk in Woodbury, and we dedicated 11 new signs through Cannon County on the original trail and that is such a great thing because people would not know the Cherokees have a bike ride each year that come through. Our people left from Blyce Ferry Landing, which is called today the Cherokee Removal Park. It's over um, uh, kind of near Cleveland. Mm. And so this is a park that people can visit and see the trail ways. What is missing from that park is they don't mission, mention the Muskogee people. So our tribe is in the process now and have everything done to have a monument put to the Muskogee people that walked with the Cherokee on the Northern Trail. And they left from there and they went through Woodbury and right through Nashville here. We'll be, so, I'll
0: be, we'll be looking forward to that. We have to end it here. I want to thank you so much. That is Melba Chakotay's She is a Native activist from the Muskogee Creek Nation of Oklahoma. She was joined by Toy Heap from the Native History Association and Helen Tarleton from Whites Creek. I want to thank you all for being here and thank you for sharing your stories.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: We want to thank everybody who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow we'll learn how our Iranian and Kurdish communities are responding to the recent events and recent protests in Iran. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche and Rose Gilbert, digital lead Anna Gallegos-Canon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producers Andrea Tudhope. Shout out to our intern, Tori Hoover, and the masterminds behind our theme music, and Namir-Blade. Special thanks to Mr. Albert Bender. I'm Khalil Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. Be good to each other.